T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Tuesday, July 3rd. 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer. And coming up on today's show, we're going to speak with Liz Rotenberry from the Elizabeth Dole Foundation. She is going to talk to us about their caregiver fellowships, essentially positions that they have that allow caregivers to advocate on a larger scale and be given a larger platform to advocate for those veterans that they care for. And of course, this comes from the Elizabeth Dole Foundation with Senator Elizabeth Dole heading things up. We're going to talk to Liz about that program and so much more coming on later in the show. And I think we're going to have Justin Brown from Hill Vets here today. But it's this weird week where Fourth of July is in the middle. So if Hill Vets Justin Brown is here, great. We're going to talk about all sorts of stuff taking place on Capitol Hill and legislation and so on and so forth. And we will talk to him about that if he is here today. If he's not, then, uh, well, we won't. So there you go. Now you know. And knowing is pretty much all of the battle. Good morning, JQs. How are you doing? Today? I'm doing fantastic, Eric. How are you? I'm okay. Nice traffic-free ride on the motorcycle into work today. I have a drive up to Connecticut tonight. Uh, I'm hoping is as traffic-free. Although it doesn't matter because when you're driving, as my wife says, I complain because I may I was able to make it when traffic wasn't bad from Long Island to to here uh, in in uh, Washington D.C. Well, where I live, so in between Washington and Baltimore, essentially, I was able to make it there without much traffic in like three and a half hours, three, three and a half hours. Cause I didn't stop. I just kept going. I stopped, got some food and stuff before I left, kept going all the way down. And she just laughs at me. She's like, you're driving with a woman and a five-year-old. Basically everybody has to go to the bathroom every five minutes and it's not on the same <laughs> schedule. Like, well, we've literally stopped it. You ever driven up uh, through New Jersey? No, I have not. So the New Jersey Turnpike is a very, it runs the entire length of the state, bottom to top, right? And top to bottom, depending on which way you're going. And they have these rest stops. All of them have names. There's the Molly Pitcher rest stop. There's the Vince, the Vince Lombardi rest stop is right up by Giant Stadium. So it's you know kind of fitting that it's there. They all have these names. And we were at one of them in the southern part of New Jersey. Everybody goes to the bathroom except for my son. We all get food. Okay, well, you don't have to go. No, I don't have to go to the bathroom. We get back in the car. Literally, as soon as we're back on the Jersey Turnpike, I have to go to the potty. What? what? It was three minutes ago. <laughs> you said no. We were just in the bath. Well, I have to go now. So that's what it is. And then, you know, you do what you got to do. So it always takes at least an hour to two hours longer than it would with just myself. So. You know, and and I would say, well, at least I have the company in the car. But no, she's looking at her phone most of the time, reading through stuff and checking Twitter and all that. And my son is uh, sitting in the back watching. Uh, you know, he'll watch movies. He will talk to me throughout the ride, and she will at points, especially if I engage her or complain. Like, put down the phone and talk to me. Problem is, 
one of the things I like to listen to on the way on those long drives, Jake, are my podcasts and radio shows and things like that. Well, podcasts, because they're not broadcast over the air, the language is a little strong on them sometimes. Ah. A little too strong for when you have a five-year-old in the car. So then I, I mean, I can put on music. I've got my music playlists and everything, but I don't know, man. I, I don't... Do you like long drives? I know for a while you were a trucker after you got out. Yes, for a, I do. In for matter, a short time. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, on Thursday, I'm I'm doing my first long-distance motorcycle ride Ooh. over to uh, Philadelphia. Oh, what are you going up to Philadelphia for? Just... Military friends getting together, having yeah, some fun. Neat. Well, Philadelphia, you'll, you'll, you probably won't pass through New Jersey too much if you go to Philadelphia. You can. It depends on which way the GPS takes you. And I know you got your little phone hookup. Yeah. Oh, I have to tell this story. This is how stupid I am. Okay. So, how stupid are you? All right. A couple of days ago, <laughs> I'm uh, driving on my motorcycle, following my GPS. As I'm coming home from work, I had to make a stop. So I'm using my GPS. And randomly through the ride, I pat my left pocket where I always hold my phone and had a mo- had a two minutes straight. I mean, crap, I forgot my phone at work. I'm going to have to turn around. I'm looking at my phone, my GPS. Yeah. It's one of those things like, where are the sunglasses? Where yeah. are my sunglasses? Where like, are my sunglasses? For two straight minutes, I'm looking at my phone thinking, crap, I lost. I left my phone at work. Yeah, there's those, those moments happen where you're looking for something. And I remember one. One day, I think I was stationed in Italy, and I did the morning show, and I had to be up early. Like, I would get up at 4 a.m., I think, 3.30 a.m., 4 a.m., to get in at 5, to do prep work, to go on the air at 6. I would get up on uh, on Tuesdays because we were, you know, like six, seven hours ahead there, whatever it was. And uh, the Monday night football would still be playing on the radio on AFM when I got up. But there was a morning where I walked outside and was like, oh, no. I don't have my keys. The door shuts behind me. I go, I unlock the door to go back into the house and, and I can't find my cert. I'm ransacking the house. I have to call my boss. Like I can't find my keys. I can't find my keys. Then it clicks probably after 15, 20 minutes. I unlocked the door to the house. <laughs> that key ring had the car keys on it. They were in my hand the whole time. And for some reason, like I reached, so they're in my right hand, but I reached into my pocket with my left hand, like, oh no, where are my keys? <laughs> oh, I better go back inside. Unlock the door, go inside. I had a, uh, I had a uh, lady friend living with me at the time. I wake her up. I've got her half asleep searching the house with me. <laughs> and then I go, I right, never mind. I found him. <laughs> where were they? I, I I don't it doesn't don't don't worry about it just head it out because I didn't want to sound like <laughs> the idiot that I was but yeah that kind of stuff happens once in a while and there's there's not much that you can do about it you know some people think there's not much that you can do about anything when you are disabled but that's not necessarily the case and Matt Sainsing has an article up on ConnectingVets.com that proves that it's called you're more than just disabled and this group will pay you to prove it yeah. That's right. It's talking about an organization that is uh, called the Independent Project. It's a privately funded national research effort that aims to get transitioning veterans relying on a disability check working in jobs they want rather than staying home. The heart of the project is that if people are working, they'll have much better outcomes than if they're waiting for the check to arrive. And it certainly gives you, I think, having a job to do gives you 
some sense of purpose in life. I mean, yep. now if I win the lottery, I am not one of those people who's like, well, I'm just going to go to work the next day. Nope. I'm done working for the rest of my life. I'm going to find fun things to take up my time. <laughs> I'm going to travel, go wherever I want. If I win the, you know, the $500 million uh, Powerball or whatever else is happening out there, I am absolutely not working. But until that day, I think you do need to work to kind of have something to do. And it makes me think of, you know, it just, just your typical military retiree. They don't tend to live too much longer after they get out if they don't find something else to do, you know? Yeah. I'm sure you knew some guys who, like, they retired, and then eh, a couple of years later, you were here, like, oh, yeah, what happened to uh, Sergeant Major so-and-so? Oh, he's dead now. Now, I had, a, I had a platoon sergeant when I was in Iraq, my second deployment, and he used to tell us all the time, his because he had had 17 years in, so his plan, he told us all the time in his really thick accent, he would say, guys... When I retire, I'm going back to La Isla with a fat sack of weed, and I'm not going to do anything. <laughs> and is he? <laughs> uh, yep. He is chilling in Puerto Rico on La Isla, not doing anything. There you go. Hey, he's, he's like, if my wife that. wants money, she can go get a job. She can work. Right. Well, it makes it it makes me think of there was a, uh, a senior chief that I worked with down in Jacksonville, Florida, who uh, I did not get along with. He kept trying, because I was not a chief, but I was a department head. He didn't like that I was like his equal in that way. Like at the meetings, like I had as much, actually more pull than him because he worked in supply and I worked in uh, public affairs. So I actually did stuff in regards to recruiting. He just got stuff for recruiters. Um, he didn't like that. So he was always trying to you know, mess with me and screw me over basically. So I didn't care for the guy, but I didn't wish him dead. Then I came back like two years. <laughs> I guess it was about, well, I guess it was about a year after I left because I left from uh, from Jacksonville to go to Greece. Then when I came back from Greece, I went down to visit friends in Jacksonville and I swung by my old work, you know, a year, year and a half later, whatever it was. And I was like, oh, what happened to a uh, senior? And the guys who work with him were like, oh, you didn't hear? No, he, he died like five months after he retired, like out at the club, had a heart attack, dropped dead, something like that. Like, I mean, it was like, oh, wow. Now he was in horrible physical shape he was the perfect example of uh, as we call it in the navy the khaki mafia the chiefs that you know at that point and it's changed a lot now but at that point this guy had no chance of passing the prt like i had one prt he was doing his push-ups and sit-ups right next to me and i was able to count his and mine and be like dude no <laughs> you just did like seven sit-ups that's not okay you just did like 12 push-ups that's not okay and how's his run doing <laughs> not very well he was shaped like a bowling ball with feet yeah just, see uh, in the army you have to get to about e8 first sergeant to do it'd be frocked because yeah, in the they, army e7 isn't as big a deal as no, it is in the other services no it's not uh and i learned that uh in the army where it was like oh sergeant first class doesn't it's not it's it's an e7 but it doesn't come with any of the same things that like a chief or a gunny or a master sergeant in the air force comes with um it's uh it's just different it's one of those differences between the services yeah. i wonder why that is i'm not quite sure I th i'm not quite sure i think it's because a lot of people make it because it is it is a congressional it is a centralized board and it is an act of congress to promote you to sergeant first class but it really isn't until you get frocked and you're in that position of an e8 first sergeant to where you really get afforded that respect of you run this company. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's uh, I, just little differences between the services that are always interesting. Here's something new for your army, Jake. West Point has its first black superintendent in its 216-year oh, wow. history. His name is Lieutenant General 
Lieutenant General Daryl Williams. He graduated from West Point in 1983. I imagine that's probably one of the prerequisites for the job. Right. Um, Sold high-ranking Army posts in Europe and Asia and will become the first black officer to command at West Point in its 216-year history. This was announced late last week. He'll assume command as the 60th superintendent during a ceremony. Uh, well, he actually just did assume command yesterday as uh, the Academy's 60th superintendent. He's from Alexandria, Virginia. He is a former deputy chief of staff for U.S. Army Europe. Userer, I think, as the Army likes to throw that awful acronym out there. Yeah. It's like, if you've got an acronym that doesn't have a hard sound in it, it's like six letters long and all of them are like soft sounds. It just doesn't sound right. Yeah. It doesn't sound right. We got some cool sounding ones, though, like Tradoc. Tradoc yeah, there sounds you go. cool. It's got, a, it's got the duh and the t and the k. That, that's important. But usurer. Usurer? Did you, were you just trying to say usurper? And no, it sounds like something you say bit? when you don't want to answer. Oh, it was uh, a usurer. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would agree with that. See, we have like... Everything is a command, so it would be like, you know, like, like CENTCOM is, and they are PAC fleet or LANT fleet for Atlantic fleet. I don't know. The Army's got some, probably just because they have more, the Army being the yeah. biggest service, the Navy the second biggest. They have more the ways to screw it up, basically, is what I would say. Uh, also, as Deputy Commanding General uh, for support for the 2nd Infantry Division in South Korea, most recently was Commander of NATO's Allied Land Command based in Turkey. Have you ever been to West Point, Jake? No, I have not. It is a beautiful campus. Now, it's got problems, mainly that everybody there is trying to get into the Army, and I don't understand that. Yeah. Um, and it has its fair share of communists. Oh, that's true. We know now that communists have infiltrated uh, West Point, comrade. Yeah, that's what that is. Welcome to West Point. Here you will learn about what it is to be part of evil empire of United States of America. Spencer Opone, of course, is who of we're course. talking about now. Now, now in the veteran status, uh, you know, he's, yeah. now he's no longer on active duty. Um, it is a beautiful place, right on the Hudson River. There, it is just north of New York City. It's like maybe fifty miles north of it, which is, uh, you know, that would be a recruiting pitch for most schools. For my school, Hofstra, it is. Hey, we're only. 25 miles from New York City. You're a quick train ride away from Penn Station and being in Madison Square Garden as you walk out of the train. Because for those not familiar with New York City, that's how it works. Penn Station opens up into Madison Square Garden. You come out of the train station, you're at the garden. Um, the thing is, for West Point, they don't get to do anything. Nope. They don't get to leave. Especially that to... plebe year. They are locked oh, down. Yeah. But even after that, there's not a lot of like, oh, yeah, we're going to go down to New York City for the weekend until your last year. But even then, in your last year, here's the problem, Jake. It's this snake consuming itself. The ones who are seniors or fourth class cadets or whatever they're called, they now have to run the the freshmen. Basically, so they nope. don't like this is supposed to be their free time. They're also really at that point starting to prepare for their careers in the military, figuring out what schools they might go to, um, which is always fascinating. I knew some people uh, I knew some people who went to, um, you know, different military schools like the Citadel, went through ROTC and, uh, you know, dealt with uh, the fact that on their summer when every other kid at college like the ROTC kids. On summer break, everybody else is going home. They're doing like four weeks of training for every summer. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know, man. Like I, I'm, I'm, I went through college in a different way. I, I obviously I was older. I 
got married and had a child while I was in college. That was while I was still in community college, I think, pretty early on. Yeah, because my yeah, son was at my graduation. My thing was I got actually got an offer letter to go to uh, West Point when I was in E6 because of their Green to Gold program. Oh, just yeah. like Spencer. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I turned it down because I was at that point in my life where – I couldn't like I couldn't go through basic training again because I couldn't put up yeah. with that strict rigid discipline. So I know what would happen. I would go to West Point. Some twenty-year-old senior would tell me to sit at the exaggerated position of attention and name off the meals for the day, and I would tell him to well do sit something. And spin. Yeah, I, I would <laughs> tell him to do something that I can't say on the radio, yeah. and then I would get expelled. Yeah, it's one of those things. Like you know, and, and as uh, you see it in the in the military too, like as a first class when there would you'd get people coming in like we're gonna do it this we're gonna do it. like yeah, calm down, buddy. We know what we're doing. Let's just go about this as professionals, and yeah. you don't need to yell and you don't need to do all this. Everyone stuff. thinks they're infantry, but it's like, dude, we're we're broadcasters. We know what we're doing. We have a set <laughs> way of doing things, and it's working. Oh, so I was talking to somebody about that at uh, as I mentioned yesterday at my uh, the birthday party that my son went to. Um, on Sunday, it turned out the parents of uh, the little boy whose birthday it was, the father and mother are both Army, and the mother was actually an instructor at the Defense Information School, as odd as that is, small world. That's where people go to learn how to be journalists and broadcasters and photographers and all that stuff. And uh, was talking to a friend of hers that also worked at Dimfos about how how the Army, like when I worked for AFN, the Army hated me, hated me. Now, my bosses at the stations I worked at loved me. Do you know why? Because it looked good on their evals to be like, hey, we put out surveys and everybody was listening to the show. That doesn't happen on a lot of bases because the Army has its very specific way of doing things and they run AFN. They want everything done like, you know, by the book and you do this and you do that. And this is you do two minutes of talking about the news and then you go to the weather and then you go to this and then you play a song. You come back, you introduce the next I didn't do that. I did a radio show like the ones I grew up listening to, and people seem to enjoy it. And, uh, well, I'm one of the few people outside of outside <laughs> of the military still doing broadcasting. So what does that tell you? Um, the Army did not like that. And the Army is, God bless you guys, but, man, there are some things about the Army that I would just sit down, and everyone, to a man, I'm talking about generals, uh, senior enlisted, uh, officer colonels, uh, you know, junior enlisted. I would talk to people about like, you know what the army needs to do better? And they all agreed. They all agreed. They yeah. were like, yeah, you know, the, the bureaucracy that's involved in getting things done and the waiting and the stupidity of like the, the PT belt, that glow belt thing. Yep. Oh, wear that, wear that in Afghanistan. I'm sorry. You want me to put on reflective clothing that makes me visible from like a mile and a half away? No, I'm not going to do that. Thankfully, no one over there knew what my rank was. That's another thing the army needs to fix is figuring out the other services. Ranks, yeah, so. I don't know how many <laughs> chiefs I saluted my first uh, deployment because I was out? yeah because I was new I was new to the army and I didn't know. I just saw. I just know you see shinies, you salute. So yeah, that's pretty much the way that it worked, uh, for, you know, for and at, at Dimfos, I would get salutes after we switched, especially to those black and tan uniforms where people saw that the same color shirt that the officers and chiefs wear. And I would get like if it was Army, Air Force, I didn't really worry about it too much. Coast Guard never did it because they have the same ranks as us, basically, just with different devices. When a Marine saluted me, that was the only time that I pulled someone aside and I was like, <laughs> eh, stop. Over here, private. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. What, what can I do, sir? 
I'm not a sir. Don't salute me. This I went through there. I explained the rank. I was like, now I'm going to be at this school for another two months. And if I see you salute another petty officer, then we're going to have some remedial training on this. And we'll go talk to actually at the time, the guy running the Marine Corps barracks was my former uh, radio instructor at Dimphos. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, we'll just go talk to him about that. He's like, hey, yes, yes, sir. Don't call me, yeah. sir. Yes, petty officer. My first deployment, when the first time I saluted a chief, it was outside of the defect. And he stopped me. He was screaming at me. Do I look like an officer to you? Blah, 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 blah. You say, yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, you do. You do. You do. But then my platoon sergeant, my E7, came up and and asked what was going on. The chief explained, your private here is saluting enlisted men. He just looked at him and was like, blank off, and then walked away with me. And I'm like, "Ah, it's by Sir, chief, whatever. Yeah, there, and, and I don't like that. If if a marine did it, that's a young marine. You have to fix that. Cause that's the the sea services. They're supposed to know that. I knew that they went through training on that. The guys who get all crazy about that with anybody who's not in the navy. And honestly, there are times when you're in. Li- I was in for thirteen years. There were times in my thirteenth year where I'd be walking along on the base and see someone coming towards me. Chiefs and officers wear the same uniforms. And you'd just you'd be like, eh. if they were wearing the uh, the garrison caps, you know, not not the big rounded ones, but the pointy hats, basically. If they were wearing those and coming towards me, I would be like, uh, is there a device on the other side? That's how you can tell a chief from uh, from an officer from a distance. Officers have devices on both sides of that cap. Chiefs only have the anchor on the one. But it it would sometimes be you'd have to wait till they got pretty close. Yeah, there was the same thing. Same thing in the army because you see three up, three down, and a black spot in the middle, and you can't tell is this a first sergeant? Is this a sergeant major? And so you basically got to wait till almost. I remember one time. I was walking by and it was a first sergeant, but I couldn't tell if it was a diamond or a star. Mm. So I basically said it as I was walking past him. And he was like, too late, drop. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, I don't, I never understand. Some of those guys are just sociopaths who enjoy stuff like that. Yep. And I ran into more of those than I'd like to uh, admit. But there's also some of them that re- they just think, I, I think some of them do think that you're trying to be intentionally disrespectful. And it's like, dude, I don't have the greatest eyesight. I don't have my glasses on. You wear the exact same uniform. I don't know you. If I knew you, if I worked with you, okay. But you know what? If it took me a couple extra seconds to salute, it maybe start screaming. That's like the same guys. And I saw, man, did I see this in the army where they would flip out on anybody with their hands in their pockets? Yep. Get your goddamn hands out of your flipping pockets. Well, why'd you put them on the uniforms then there, Sergeant? You know, how come I got pockets? So you've given me a piece of equipment and you don't want me to use it? That doesn't sound like very good planning. That nope. sounds like fraud, waste, and abuse. Nope, and you can't use the hoods on the rain gear either. Really? Yep. <laughs> they, they will get mad at you. They'll say, no, take that hood off. What? what? It's like it's pouring down rain. That's what a hood is for. Like That's why it's on the... Yeah, I never understood that. Uh, and I, the Army is... There were people in the Navy who were like that too, but it seemed that there were a lot more people in the army from all the time I spent with them that were incredibly anal retentive about uniform stuff and about all that, you know, you'd see it in the Navy, the Marine Corps. It's, you don't notice it because everybody is that way. Literally all of them are like, they all know the uniform regulations and you will see a corporal in the Marine Corps call out like a master gunnery sergeant over a uniform issue. They will do it. And that's when, uh, also when they really want to play a, a prank on each other, you know what they do? They mess with their uniforms. I saw one where a, a gunny had his, uh, 
and his insignia turned upside down. He was not happy when he figured it I out. I had a first sergeant that would, or sorry, no, sorry, a sergeant major that would do that. He would walk around the motor pool with his rank upside down to see what private would be brave enough to say, uh, Sergeant Major, you, your uniform's wrong. Yeah. Well, that's. And that's, the guy who did it would get a four day. <laughs> there you go. Hey, that's, I like that more than the guy who walks around just yelling at everybody about their uniforms and everything else. Uh, leadership by volume. That's what uh, yep. some people like to do. I never particularly cared for it. I can't remember raising my voice more than two or three times, and each time it was like, as, as a first class, and each time it was like, what, what is wrong with you? We just went over this, and you still did the wrong thing. Well, we're doing the right thing here. It's the morning briefing brought to you by Entercom's ConnectingVets.com. To remind you, today is our final show of the week. We will not be here Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday. Jake and I both going to be off for the holiday, as I said. Heading up to Connecticut with my family tonight. You're not particularly going anywhere, right? Other than your trip to Philadelphia. Yeah, I'm going to be there Thursday through Monday. Philadelphia is a beautiful city. There's only one problem with it. What? The people that live there. <laughs> uh, but it, there's a lot of cool stuff to see. And very cool restaurant, if you're in the if you're in the market for it, where they serve... Like the same food that they served in the 1700s, like back in the you know the, the Constitution days. Oh yeah, I get some hardtack and unsweetened chocolate. No, no, it's it's like good food, like from the the personal menus of like George Washington and everybody. They also have a flight of beer that's the menus of like uh, uh, everybody had their own. So Ben Franklin, George Washington, it's a pretty good place. I would recommend checking it out. I also recommend you stay right here because up next, we've got Liz Rotenberry from the Dole Foundation. After that, we may have Justin Brown of Hill Vets. <laughs> I think he'll actually be talking to Jake this week if he is coming in. So uh, stick around for that and be sure to follow us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. A little tap on your phone or click on your mouse and you'll be living your best veteran life. Morning Briefing, back after this. We're CBS Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. Online and all over social media. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and Twitter. At Connecting Vets. Welcome back to The Morning Briefing. I'm your host, Eric Dame. Jake Hughes is your producer in ConnectingVets.com. Well, that's your website, my friend. Whether you're a veteran, the family member of a veteran, the spouse of a veteran, the friend of a veteran, or someone who just thinks veterans are kind of interesting people, and let me tell you, you are right some of the time. Anyway, ConnectingVets.com focuses entirely on the veteran experience as well as a little bit on the military community. But what we try to do is put forth the type of content that can help veterans live their best veteran life. Whether it's knowing about benefits, whether it's keeping an eye on legislation, whether it's telling you about... Cool little things like getting into parks for free or checking out amusement parks at a discount. How about discounts to veterans at Sam's Clubs? Yeah, we got articles on all of that up and so much more along with video. And as you know, since you're listening to this, audio as well. In fact, the morning briefing show is downloadable every day from the website within a few hours of the finish of our first broadcast. So go check out ConnectingVets.com now. I'm not going to wait for you. I'm just going to ask you to do it on your own. And then, of course, follow us on social media where we are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is going to talk to us about the Elizabeth Dole Foundation, specifically 
their caregiver community program coordinator, and their foundation's fellows program because she's the coordinator of both of those. Her name is Elizabeth Rotenberry, and she is, in fact, a military caregiver for her husband, who is a USMC, United States Marine Corps Wounded Warrior, having served in both Operation Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us this morning. How are you today? Hi, great. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I'm, I'm looking forward to this opportunity to share with your listeners more about my story and the Elizabeth Dole Foundation. And let's start off with your story. As I mentioned, your husband, a Marine Corps veteran, and you are his caregiver. Tell us a little bit about your time as both a military spouse and as a caregiver for him in the Marine Corps. Give us the, uh, the, the tale of your, of your, of your co-career, I suppose. Yes, absolutely. Um, so my, my husband and I actually met in high school, and uh, we, we kind of stayed connected through his time going into boot camp. Uh, once I graduated college, we ended up getting married, and I went ahead and followed him and supported him throughout his time in the Marine Corps. Um, my husband was a chief trainer down at Tumas at Camp Lejeune, um, and he had deployed back in 2005 to Iraq, um, came home, Everything seemed okay. You know, I knew he had been through some stuff. Um, again, you know, they don't always talk, tell you everything they go through, but assuming everything is okay. Um, our military career continued on. He loved what he was doing. Um, as a staff sergeant, he went ahead and deployed to Afghanistan in uh, November 20, 2010. And during that time, it was kind of the height of the Afghanistan war. Um, we were really, they, they were going through a lot. He, he landed... Um, into the Sangin Valley. Uh, he took several missions of canine teams out on, out on patrol. Um, as you know, canine kind of always lead the way. They're the ones, the first ones out on the path um, ahead of any platoon to make sure it's safe. On March 29, 2011, my husband was out on an early morning mission. Um, he, with a few other canine teams, were out on a path and the Marine behind him literally stepped one footprint off that path, uh, unfortunately stepping on an IED. That Marine um, suffered catastrophic wounds, um, and my husband was blown about 15 feet downhill. Uh, when he came to, he came to the aid and recovery of that Marine. And at that same time, he had to clear a clear landing zone to get the Marine medevaced out and when that happened, they also came under heavy fire for about the next six hours. Uh, my husband didn't know he was bleeding. He didn't know he had suffered any injuries. He thought the blood on his uniform was more from the other Marine than himself. It wasn't until he got back to the FOB that he realized he had shrapnel wounds to his neck and face. Uh, about a day, I guess about a day later, I got a call from Marine Corps headquarters informing me that he had suffered minor physical injuries, but that he was going to be fine and he was going to stay in theater. So I didn't think too much about it because, you know, it's not, a, it's not a knock at the door. And they said, he's fine, and it's minor. And I said, okay, we're good. Everything's good. And then it was about, um, that was in March, and then in July 2011, my husband came home from that deployment. And it was almost immediate. The minute he stepped off that bus and talked to me, I knew something was wrong. And at this point, we had been together about 10 years. I knew something was not right. Um, and I just chalked it up to he's been on deployment. He doesn't know where he's going. He hasn't been here in a while. Uh, so we just kept making excuses. Uh, come to find out, my husband did suffer a traumatic brain injury. 
um, along with several other health issues, severe PTSD, uh, hearing loss. He's got spine, neck, knee issues, uh, a variety of things. And so it took us a little while to really kind of find our way into what we need to do for Chuck. Um, But that's where the VA Caregivers Program came to me, and um, I asked them, you know, what is the severity of Chuck's level? I don't, I don't understand what, where he falls. And they said, you know, he's, he's actually one of the top tiers for his injury at the time. And they said, you're his caregiver. And I had never heard that word before. And that word changed everything for me. It gave me a sense of not only am I his wife and there for him, to care for him and love him, but I'm also the one that's going to be responsible to help get him the care he needs. And so that kind of took on a new role for me. And I was fortunate to come across the Elizabeth Dole Foundation, who um, takes on fellows. And I can explain a little bit more about that to you in a second. But that's a little bit about how our life kind of came about. And my husband probably served for 14 years, uh, promoted to gunnery sergeant, we miss the Marine Corps life every day. It was a great life, um, but we're very blessed to be where we are today. Elizabeth, when you talk about that moment, finding out that you are now a caregiver, something that you probably weren't prepared for from the sound of it, what do you remember about the, the days, weeks, and months following that? Were you immediately able to find support from organizations like the Elizabeth Dole Foundation? Did it, it, it take a little time to exactly find your footing? What was that process like for you as someone who's gone through it? Well, it did take a little bit of time for me to understand, and especially in 2011 and 2012 when this was all happening, Caregiver wasn't really talked about that much yet, um, and even traumatic brain injuries weren't as discussed as much. So we were still kind of living in this dark circle of, well, what do we do now? Um, but I did find some organizations who were able to help me, like Blue Star Families. Um, I attended a caregiver empowering caregiver um, day, and uh, and it was interesting because I had actually said to my mom, I'm I'm going to this caregiver. Uh, event, and she even said, well, who are you a caregiver to? Um, and I said, my husband. I said, Chuck. And of course, you know, most people, when they hear the word caregiver, they think hospice or senior care. They don't think the young spouse or, um, you know, the brother or the sister who's now taking care of their loved one. Um, so it, it was, at the time, a very still learning, still processing what this role is. But I did, you know, I just tried to research and try to get involved with organizations and Wounded Warrior Project, I reach out to them to join the alumni program so that we could get him more involved with other veterans and get myself involved too to learn more about what, what is happening to my husband and what can I do for him. We're speaking with Liz Rotenberry. She's a military caregiver for her husband, a Marine Corps wounded warrior, served in both Operation Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom. She's also an Elizabeth Dole Fellow alumna, and she is uh, working for their caregiver community program, the Foundation Fellows Program as a coordinator. Liz, having interacted with the Dole Foundation first as a caregiver and a spouse, what was it that made you want to become a part of the organization? And how soon after you started interacting with them did you think to yourself, this is something I want to be a, more of a part of? 
absolutely. Um, it actually, Blue Star Families is the one who, who told me about Elizabeth Dole Foundation. They came to me and said, Liz, you're, you're doing such a great job learning and talking about your story. We think you should, you know, apply to be a fellow. And I had no idea what that even meant. But I was very interested, and when I started to research about that, I thought, you know, this is great. This gives me an opportunity to not only connect with other military caregivers, but, it, you know, when, when you get out of the military so suddenly like that, you kind of can't find your way, and you don't know where you belong. Um, and I missed that military connection. I missed that unity with the other spouses. And so I thought, this is great. This gives me that connection back, um, and this will be a good opportunity to advocate and be able to share more about our story because we were undiagnosed, because we had gone for so long. I know there's not a lot of families who have a foundation as strong as my husband and I. And so to, you know, for me, it's advocating for those families who don't understand what's going on with their spouse. And, you know, I don't want to see them give up. So it was important for me to apply when I, when I heard about the Elizabeth Dole Foundation was looking for 2015 fellows to apply, and the state of Maryland was on that application. Um, I, I absolutely said I have to apply. And, I mean, I would love to tell you more about the history of the foundation. Yeah, sure, absolutely, because I think there are a lot of people out there who know the name Elizabeth Dole. They know Senator Dole. She's been a public person for a very long time, so they know the name. They probably heard about the Elizabeth Dole Foundation, but might not know the real background of it. So what can you tell us about the foundation, where it began, and how it got to where it is today? Absolutely. So Senator Elizabeth Dole, um, back in around 2011, about six years ago, six, seven years ago, uh, found herself in Walter Reed Hospital. Senator Bob Dole had some health issues that he actually had to stay there for 11 months. Um, During that 11 months, Senator Elizabeth would walk around the halls, get to know the families that are there, get to talk with the loved ones. It was during that time that she realized we have a serious epidemic happening right before her eyes. She's noticing more and more wounded warriors, sustaining injuries on the battlefield that they normally wouldn't sustain in wars previously. So she's seeing now the loved ones by their sides who are having to leave their jobs, having to leave their schooling, having to give, get, get out of retirement to come now take care of their children. Um, and as she started talking with them, she just realized, I've got to do something about this. This is, And if anybody knows Senator Elizabeth Dole or Senator Bob Dole, their passion for wounded warriors and for military veterans and their families is so strong. It's so big that she couldn't just stand by and not reach out to do something for them. So she created the Elizabeth Dole Foundation in 2012. And during that time, she wanted to see what can we do to get these caregivers back into, you know, get them the resources they need back into work. What can we do to financially help them? What can we do to get them into schooling? Um, you know, what are they going to do to survive? And so she had created the, the Elizabeth Dole Foundation. Um, and, and with that, she expanded it into fellows in the fellows program. And that's where I kind of came into the picture was in 2015, being selected as one of the fellows. There's a fellow for every state across the nation, one to two fellows who are currently serving. But we also have alumni because now we've been established for six years. So we're really growing in these states. And the fellows are military caregivers. They could be, like I said, parents, siblings, friends, spouses, children, uh, you name it. Anybody can be a caregiver that the veteran feels should be their caregiver. 
every state has these caregivers who represent their state, help advocate, help um, get awareness out to those to help them self-identify as a caregiver, to work with the local cities to better resources. Uh, and so the, the foundation has really been growing, and I can't tell you how much. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable when I see it from even just the time of me starting as a fellow to today and seeing just the, the, the amount of growth and just getting the word caregiver understood by everybody and getting the legislative processes through to get better resources for these caregivers. It's, it's been unbelievable. We're speaking to Liz Rotenberry from the Elizabeth Dole Foundation. She is the Elizabeth Dole Foundation's Fellows Program Coordinator. Talk to her about the history of the Elizabeth Dole Foundation and about that Fellows Program, which sounds really incredible and fascinating and also sounds like something that kind of goes back to a point that you brought up earlier where when people think of a caregiver, they may think of you know an elderly veteran or a veteran who has you know maybe a quadruple amputee or something like that. They think of their spouse taking care of them. Uh, it's oftentimes the parents, the children, the spouses, and it can be someone who may not have externally visible wounds. How important do you think it is to make sure that not only the public knows that, but that the caregivers know that they are doing the same job as that spouse caring for someone in hospice or caring for someone who's uh, you know uh, under uh, extreme physical conditions that they suffered? Yeah, you know, caregivers vary in in age and in relationship, and it's and not only just for the military and veteran world, but but for you know, like you said, seniors, hospice for all 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 types. And caregivers really do um, they bear the burden of so much. Um, they take on so much responsibility and management, and it's it's just fascinating to see. I know military caregivers are passionate about what they're doing. They are so strong and able to get through anything. Um, but they're, they're also passionate about advocating for what they're doing. And it's, it's, just, it's, it's just wonderful to see that this Elizabeth Dole Foundation has created a, um, an understanding of what the caregiver role is and that people need to reach out to caregivers to see what can they do to help the caregiver. Liz, what are some of the things that you've been witness to of the difference that these, you know, these caregiver fellows have been able to make around the country? I can the Elizabeth Dole Foundation fellows have, like I said, such a passion in them to make change. Um, we've we've been able to develop programs within the Elizabeth Dole Foundation, um, similar to the Hidden Heroes Cities effort. And in the Hidden Hero Cities effort, we actually have 117 cities already signed on. And that's because of the hard work of our fellows, our military caregivers, our military and veteran caregivers who are making waves in their cities. They're reaching out to their local representatives. They're reaching out to the mayors in their cities to say, look, we've got so many caregivers in our city. We need to get them the resources. We need to get them to um, to." get them the help that they need and get them to self-identify. And, I mean, we have cities such as Taylor, Texas, and Stockton, California, and Dayton, Ohio, who just recently joined on. We've had caregiver celebrations in Boston and Seattle. We're getting ready to also have one in Minneapolis. And that's because of the, the work of these military caregivers. They're so passionate about sharing their story and getting more help and resources for the caregivers that they've been able to establish these hidden hero cities. 
the, the program was, was developed in 2016 because we realized the communities, we need more community, more local support for these military caregivers. So that's just one of the areas. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. We also have the Campaign for Inclusive Care. We've got military caregivers coming together to work with the VA to very specifically explain to them what's happening in the VA during appointments. I know from my own personal experience that when I go to the VA with my husband, I may not always be asked or talked to about how my husband's doing. Sometimes I'm not always um, invited into the appointment, or sometimes I just don't always feel welcomed. But as you probably know, and maybe your family knows, that when you go to the VA, your loved one or your caregiver sitting next to you is the one who knows everything about you. They know what you're going through. And my husband, probably like many veterans, always thinks that they're fine. Whenever we go into an appointment, my husband always says, oh, I'm fine. Things are good. And, you know, I always have to look at him and say, are you sure about that? (laughs) So, um, it you know, so the Campaign for Inclusive Care is trying to work together with the VA to establish training sessions and training programs and models to get better, uh, a better understanding to the clinicians and the physicians, the staff members at the VA about what the role of the caregiver is and how to get them involved because we're the key piece to getting better care for the veteran. That is something that I've certainly found to be true, particularly with our wounded warriors, caregivers, whether that is their spouse, uh, their parents, another family member, whoever it is, those people are so on the ball, so invested, and still need the support of organizations like the Elizabeth Dole Foundation to get all the information they need and then to also help get the word out. You know, Liz, we're speaking with Liz Rotenberry from the Elizabeth Dole Foundation. She is the coordinator of their Foundation's Fellows Program. Liz, we've seen some positive movement recently with legislation expanding uh, caregiver benefits to that were only available to post-9-11 veterans, now to earlier veterans. That's good news. What are some of the issues that, that the caregiver community still faces that need to be addressed, in your opinion? Yeah, well, we were very proud. I mean, this was a great year so far to see the Raise Family Caregivers Act passed early this year in January. Um, Most recently was the VA Mission Act um, that passed, which really opens the door for all caregivers. Um, That that was a big big step because all caregivers matter, not just post-9-11, but all veterans, all caregivers matter for all eras. And that was a key piece for Senator Elizabeth Dole. I mean, she helped lead the way with other VSOs and partners to get these these acts passed. But the VA Mission Act, it still needs a lot of work. It needs we, we there's a lot of implementing that still needs to happen. It's something that we're watching very closely. Senator Dole's watching very closely. VSOs are pushing for um, the funding still needs to come through, and so we it's still a work in progress. It's something that we're going to have to stay on top of. Um, all of the time to make sure that it's headed in the right direction for those caregivers. What can the veteran community at large do to help caregivers? Is it as simple as just paying attention to the issues, making sure the politicians know how we as veterans feel about them for those who are taking care of our brothers and sisters in arms who are wounded uh, on the battlefield or back home or whatever the case may be? What can we do? What can I do to help out caregivers like yourself, Liz? Sure. Well, I mean, the simplest thing is getting to know the caregivers who are your neighbors. I mean, 
you never know who's living next door to you. If it's that young spouse, I mean, you can usually tell because sometimes there's a, a military flag out front or sometimes their license plate has something on it. So maybe not always having to ask them up, up front about it, but just saying, hey, is everything okay? Is there anything I can do to help? Or um, just really just asking, how are you doing today? Um, is the simplest form. But with the Elizabeth Dole Foundation, uh, you know, reaching out to to the to your local representatives, reaching out to your mayors to say, look, we want Elizabeth Dole Foundation's Hidden Hero Cities established in our in our area. We really want to have um, resources for those caregivers. We want to help self-identify. Um, you know, other ways you can help is just supporting Elizabeth Dole Foundation. You know. We're a nonprofit. We're always looking for ways to grow and to be able to uh, continue our effort. And to be able to do that, we need support. Um, but just the simplest thing with caregivers is they don't ask for much. They don't usually, you know, most of the time they like to manage things themselves. But it would be nice sometimes to have, you know, if the young boy down the street could come and cut the grass or if somebody wanted to just watch the kids so that I could be able to go to the store and get groceries without having to take everybody or things like that. And it's the simplest tasks that help the caregivers. And that is something that certainly we need to keep in mind when we are wanting to help out and assist caregivers like Liz Rotenberry, who we've been speaking to. Liz is a military caregiver for her husband, Marine Corps veteran and wounded warrior serving in both Operation Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom. She's also an Elizabeth Dole Fellow alumna and now the coordinator of the Foundation's Fellows Program. Liz, if people are hearing about this for the first time or maybe even not for the first time and hearing your story and saying, this is something I'd like to get involved in. I'd like to be one of the fellows from my home state, or I'd at least like to help out whoever the fellows are in my home state. Where can they go to find out more about the foundation and about that program specifically? Definitely. We have the ElizabethDoleFoundation.org, and we also have HiddenHeroes.org. And if you're a caregiver, I know from experience what you're going through. Every veteran has a unique story. We're not all the same, but we all are going through similar uh, similar life, a similar type of way of living. And so if there's anything the Elizabeth Dole Foundation can do to help you, please feel free to reach out to us. Send us an email at info at elizabethdolefoundation.org. We will try to get back to you. You know, Usually within a day or two, we'll get back to you. We'll get you the resources you need and connect you to um, the VSOs that, that we feel can best help or our partners. Um, but and if you are a caregiver, we can also get you onto our Hidden Heroes Caregiver Community page. We have a, a private Facebook page that is very well maintained and managed. Um, and on there, you can go and find out information. You can connect with other caregivers. It's a wonderful community just to be able to be a part of, to be able to, like I said, share those resources. Uh, you can register at hiddenheroes.org. And you can also find a list of resources on our website if you are in need. There's nonprofits, there's uh, other organizations who are willing to help you that we have listed. 
And the Dole Foundation works hand-in-hand with many organizations like the Wounded Warrior Project, Paralyzed Veterans of America. There are There's a network out there for caregivers, and the Elizabeth Dole Foundation is an extremely valuable part of that network. And Elizabeth Rotenberry is the coordinator of their Foundation's Fellows Program. Liz, thank you so much for joining us here on The Morning Briefing, and thank you for everything that you're doing for all of those caregivers out there. Uh, it's, it's truly inspirational and great work. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate the time. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.